Listen to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. My guest this week is Patrick Rosencrantz, whose latest book is a biography of Rand Holmes called The Artist Himself. Rand Holmes holds a certain particular importance for what I do here um, because to me, looking at his work, he is the quintessential Vancouver underground cartoonist. And so part of the reason I'm having Patrick on today is because on Saturday there is an art show at Lucky's Comics on August the 6th um, at 24th and Main. I don't know what time the, sh the opening is from. Probably 7 to 10, I'm figuring. Somewhere in there. 
but yeah, they'll I be seven to ten Saturday night luckies, August sixth. There we go. And hey, so here, exciting to be on Ink Studs. Ink Studs is a big uh, name these days. You've got a book out. You got hundreds of interviews. You're going to be a repository for the future. I hope so. It's uh, it's astonishing when I see how much I've built up over the past several years. Astonishing and frightening. <laughs> um, so what kind of stuff will we be seeing in the show? Well, uh, Martha Holmes, his widow, and I have chosen 27 pieces to hang, and they include uh, some of his comic strips, some of his uh, Georgia Strait covers, the paintings he did in later years, and a number of surprises. Nice. Um, pieces in that small space. Yeah, it'll be... I think what they call that is a salon style. Crammed, I think, is what we call it. <laughs> now, you get your money's worth, and it's free. It's money's worth and free, and maybe there will be drinks to be had. Not saying for sure. Um, what makes him quintessentially Vancouver? Why? Why does this come up for me? What do you think? Well, Rand Holmes was a very. Um, contradictory sort of person. He uh, was shy and retreating, but his comics were bold, and he would break laws and flaunt uh, his habits and make fun of authority. So he was a contradiction. He had this uh, terrific artistic quality, and yet he had this internal self-esteem problem where he often was in great depression about his work and his personality and his future. He was really a man of contradictions, but he was definitely Canada's most revolutionary cartoonist ever. Those are strong words. Ever. <laughs> Hear that, Chester Brown? <laughs> well, Chester Brown is doing some interesting things, but, you know, I don't ever see Chester Brown drawing the chief of police of Vancouver with a nightstick up his butt. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Um, it was really neat reading the book and seeing all these different parts of Vancouver placed in there, and then, like, looking at his comics, and I can tell exactly where his studio was because of the view from the window and what building it's looking at. It's, Aren't uh, a number of those brick buildings in Gastown torn down by now? Some of them are, but uh, one, the building that he looks at in one photo, I know that building, so I can tell where he would have been and I have a feeling that studio is probably still there. Uh huh. The one where the Georgia Strait originally was. So ah. I yeah, have I have an amusing story about that building. In 1972 or 73, I was in correspondence with him, and I said, I'm going to come up to Canada to meet you. Can uh, we talk? And I do an interview. He said, Sure, come on up. So I drove up with my wife, and uh, we showed up at the Georgia Strait office, and I said, I'm here to see Rand Holmes. And the guy behind the desk said, oh, I'm sorry, I don't know where he is. <laughs> and I said, well, I, he told me you would say that, but he knows I'm coming, so why don't you tell him I'm here? Oh, gee, I'm sorry, man, but we don't know where he is. It turned out all that time he was living up on the third floor of that building, but he just decided at the last minute to avoid me. <laughs> and I found in his journal he did the same thing with other people. You know, he was just very shy. Oh, there was this uh, great little story you had in there of George Metzger would just go to visit him, would sit out on his back porch until Rand went in the kitchen and saw George sitting out there. Right, because he wouldn't answer the door. 
He kept his phone in the refrigerator where he wouldn't hear it if it rang. So that was how George managed to make contact with him. And Brent Boats, who was his roommate at that same place, said he hardly ever saw Rand, even though they shared the, the, the apartment. And the only time he knew Rand was home when he smelled uh, cigar smoke. <laughs> his fancy Cuban cigars? Yes, his Cuban cigars, the seconds, the ones he got from some connection there in that port city. Now, I guess they're not illegal in Canada. They're just illegal in America, right? Yep. Yeah, you can, if you wanted to go to Cuba, it would probably make the most sense to come to Vancouver and travel from here if you decided that Cuba was a destination of interest for you. Well, even John Kennedy smoked Cuban cigars. That's right. Didn't they, uh, but right before the embargo, get a whole bunch shipped up to him? Oh, I'm sure he had his own connections. Yeah. But then there was that whole plot to poison Fidel Castro with, a, with heavy metals in his cigar. Yeah didn't work. <laughs> Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Now, That's a quote from Freud. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so, Robin, you know, I noticed that most of your interviews are with cartoonists. Mm -hmm. So I'm an exception. Since I'm not a cartoonist, I'm a writer about cartoonists. You are, and uh, you, to, to, to give you some, uh, some flattering, you're, you're what I, you know, hope, aspire to be as far as the, the work you've done kind of documenting these cartoonists like what you did with Rand and with uh, Greg Irons and Rebel Visions it's uh I look up to your work quite a lot you mean you want to be Patrick Rosencrantz when you grow up? pretty much yeah <laughs> I'm going to move to Portland next year <laughs> oh wait that's in the states looking at the background of Rand it's interesting um, how he developed artistically parallel to all these figures in the states in like San Francisco and Texas but in a completely remote location well that's true and when you're speaking of Edmonton especially mm -hmm. and that's what saw his first Zap comics and that's Clay Wilson for the first time and uh, even though he was at a large geographical distance from the center of underground activity in America he still felt uh, a kinship with that movement. And he was equally uh, influenced by earlier cartoonists like Wally Wood and Will Eisner. In fact, I found in his uh, sketchbooks a number of uh, wood-type drawings where he would actually write wood steel <laughs> on them. He stole them from a drawing of uh, Wally Wood. But, you know, he used those two artists as a guide to learning the craft, but he... He wasn't a copycat. He did his own work. Mm -hmm. There was a time he went to San Francisco briefly, too, although it didn't work out real well for him, and he carried with him the cover of one of the slow death uh, comics that he drew that looked just like a Wally Wood painting. You know the one I mean? With a space monster inside a spaceship. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the dead astronaut and the funny alien is now fucking the girl inside. Well, that's almost directly from a Wally Wood cover. And when he showed it to Gary Arlington at the San Francisco Comic Book Company, Gary, who is an EC nut and a Wally Wood fan, loved it. And he started talking about how Rand Holmes is the greatest cartoonist in the underground, which didn't sit well with some of the San Francisco guys like Roger Brand. <laughs> when Rand was in San Francisco during that time, he tried his best to fit in and become part of the scene, but... It just didn't work out for him, and he headed back to Vancouver after about a year. 
I was really surprised to see that he uh, he had a strip published in Help, Harvard Kurtzman's Help magazine. A gag strip, two of them, yeah. Yeah, which which kind of went along with that kind of connection because didn't uh, a lot of underground folks also at the same time in like yes. 1962? Warthog in Help magazine and Robert Crumb did a number of sketchbook features. So yes, Skip Williamson also had a cartoon in Harvey Crumb's. I mean, uh, <laughs> Harvey Crumb <laughs> Kurtzman magazine. Kurtzman uh, made a note on that page that if cartoonists want to send in their work, if he liked it, he would publish it and pay them the great sum of ten dollars. So I know Rand had two of them in there, and I wasn't able to find the second one. It had something to do with. Patrice Lumumba and Politics in Africa, but I've never seen that one. If anybody out there has one, I'd love to see it. There we go. Post it online for us to see. I would love to see those help magazines, but I guess they're pretty hard to come by and expensive. Yeah, they're expensive. You can find them on eBay, but you got to pay 20 30 bucks or more for them. There are also early appearances of uh, a man named John Cleese was in some of those. That's right. I've heard of him. Later on with the Monty Python, he appears in some of those funnies. Jackson is in one with Crumb, too. It's a party scene, and the two of them are in the background of the party in this photo funny. Oh, really? Yeah. I had no idea. They must have been pretty young at that point. Yes, they were. It was 1964 or 65, and they just met each other at that event. Oh, wow. So there are all these connections, and often Kurtzman was in the middle of them. Mm-hmm. He was kind of the a Texas. Underground comics. Yeah. We never really believed in the movement as far as their goals and aims, but he did support them, and he was friends with many of them. But it was Kurtzman who said that the underground comics movement was doomed from the start because they didn't believe in success. <laughs> it meant comfortable life, selling out. So they were doomed to failure from the start. Which is funny because um, it was recently in an interview with Crumb where he talks about how because of seeing Kurtzman, quote unquote, like sell himself out for commercial work, that and how that affected his own personal work, that's one of the reasons Crumb does not do that kind of work. Like well, why? the classic of golden handcuffs. Yeah. Hefner was paying him so much to do Little Annie Fanny, he couldn't possibly quit it, even though Hefner was in there disturbing the storyline, making comments, making changes. You know, it must have been frustrating as hell for Kurtzman. But it paid so well, what could he do? Yeah. And for folks that know this, Heffner himself had aspirations to become a cartoonist, but I think found being a pornographer paid a little bit. Pornographer. Core. Pardon? Soft core pornography. Yeah. I, I don't kidding. know if you'd call him a pederast. The difference between 80-year-old and 20-year-old is a long distance, but at least she's an adult. <laughs> yeah, it's creepy. Um, you don't want to make enemies with powerful people. Yeah. Luckily, I don't think you'd be listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rand, reading... One of the things you included in the book was a lot of his... Um, journals, his diaries, which were incredibly revealing. What kind of stuff did you kind of get surprised reading that, or how did that help you understand Rand? Well, that was a really big uh, plus in my research. 
his wife, Martha, gave me all of his sketchbooks and all of his journals and said, here, read them. And she hadn't even read them all. Nobody except me has read them all. And wow. it was just how honest he was about certain things. And it really helped me to understand him. And it gave me leads to find other people who knew about him. Because his sketchbooks would often have notes in them as well. So I'd put it all together. So, for instance, he had a friend named Danny Matheson. And he knew Danny back in Edmonton when they were both in high school together. In fact, I think they were roommates for a while in a basement apartment. And then they uh, hooked up again back in uh, when they moved to Vancouver, and he and Rand lived in the same communal house. So uh, Danny and he had a on-again, off-again friendship. He uh, described when they were driving to Edmonton one time from uh, Vancouver, and Rand says to him, uh, uh, Danny, I, I love you. And Danny says, yeah, man, I love you too. He says, yeah, but I, I want to go to bed with you. And Danny says, no, no, you're the wrong shape. And uh, Rand tells him, well, I just came out this week. I put a cartoon in the Georgia Strait that shows you and I having sex. And Matheson was so annoyed. What the hell did you do that for? And they argued about it all the way to Edmonton, and they were mad at each other for weeks. And if you look at that comic strip, which I reprint in the book, unless you know Matheson, you'll never know that was him in there. But it was so exciting to find out, yeah, that's the guy, and I talked to him, and he told me the real story. Those were the kind of things that really kept me going. Mm -hmm. The fact that I would get some hint in his writings or his stories or his journals, and then I would follow that lead and find the person involved in that, that anecdote and interview them. His ex-wife, his buddies from grade school, the people he lived with in that communal house, and so on and so forth. That was the real exciting part for me. It was a real detective um, uh, job to find those things out. And because he was so private and he played things so close to the vest, whenever I found something new about him, it was really exciting for me. Oh, I didn't know he did that, or I didn't know he was there. Or, wow, he said that? Yeah, it was very interesting. Those journals were so revealing about him, and I don't think I could have captured the intimacy of the man without... Martha having given me those source materials. It's quite amazing the uh, the connection you seem to have uh, developed with the with the Holmes family. Um, just the trust that they've given you. Yes, that was really something. I appreciated that very much. Martha says the I knew there was only one person I could trust, and that was Patrick Rosencrantz. I've and, talked to a lot of widows, you know, in my research on underground comics. There are a lot of widows out there, and some are more trusting than others. And Martha was all the way, 100%. You know, the most interesting journal I found, though, was that one that he did in 1964, the Fishbourne Holmes Expedition to Mexico. It was a travel log, like uh, On the Road by Jack Kerouac, where a uh, 16-year-old uh, Rand Holmes and his buddy... Fishborn decide to hitchhike to Mexico from Edmonton. <laughs> Road, and they're making up these stories about being characters from Greenwich Village and all this stuff. And it takes them a long time just to get across the border into Montana. And they get there, and they're having no rides, and they're on the side of the road for hours, and at night they have no place to sleep, so they go to the police station, the police let them sleep in a jail cell. It was such a funny adventure, and the only way I found that was by calling a guy in 
Edmonton, who was part of the hot rod scene when Rand was back there. And he had kept this little notebook that Rand left behind. And he didn't even mention it to me until my third phone call to him. And to me, that's a real treasure. Mm-hmm. You know the story I'm talking about? I don't remember. I think I remember a little bit of it in the book. Yeah, but... it's in the first chapter. Yeah. It's got drawings and, you know, an illustrated story of On the Road. He <laughs> was a wild kid. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's fascinating, like, Rand, the character, because there's so much, like, the the artistry to who he is, and you really see it develop through the years, um, and you really kind of get into that fine-tuned essence of who he is, and I'm wondering about, um, how do you think that development from Rand, the cartoonist, went in to Rand, the painter? Well, he talks about painting much, much earlier in his career. Mm. In fact, he buys an easel and tries to do uh, painting uh, uh, plain air, as they say, out on the site. Uh, Even in the early 70s, he's got himself an easel and he's out painting in the public. But it really wasn't until he moved to Laskiti Island and in the early 1990s that he started doing it seriously. So he always wanted to be a painter, and he read a lot of biographies of painters, too. I, I think that's what he really wanted to be, but cartooning paid the bills, and cartooning was closer to his his uh, social conscience. Which yeah, is... painter was uh, sort of an ultimate goal of his. And you know, those paintings he did, his intention was to submit them all to uh, Juxtapose magazine. And that never happened, unfortunately. That was his dream there toward the end. And I talked to Robert Williams about it, who is a, an editor at Juxtapose, and he tried to help me get those things published, but it just didn't work out. Maybe uh, sometime in the future they'll look at them again. Well, it's it's kind of ironic in a way because you see a lot of cartoonists now that focus on painting instead of cartooning because that's where the bills are paid. Yeah, there is that trend, and there is also the trend to use cartoon elements in uh, oil paintings too. Mm-hmm. Like I'm thinking, like uh, folks like Jim Woodring or Dave Cooper, right? Who you know come from these incredible comics and then just kind of go off into painting. And now Dave can do like a dozen paintings in a year, and he'll make more off that than he've ever made in all his comics. Right. <laughs> Whole different market. And yeah. then there's people like Kim Deitch and. Uh, Bill Griffith, who went to a Pratt Institute and studied painting and tried to be painters and then dropped it and became cartoonists. Bring a load of 
RC Cola, a TV dinner, a plate of Twinkies and takes a pink burrito for to keep me clean. Don't like no carrots, can't stand no peas, but a pack of ding dong bring me down to my knees. Bring a load of RC Cola, a TV dinner, a plate of Twinkies and it takes a pink burrito. Before it keep me clean Girlfriend sweet, she ain't like no other Let's me spend all day in front of that 24 inch color and Brings a load of RC Cola A TV dinner A plate of Twinkies and takes a pink burrito Before to keep me clean Only one thing makes me jump up and holler TV breaks down during bowling for dollars Get a load of RC Cola dinner and play the Twinkies and takes a pink burrito before they keep me clean. And we're back. Uh, this is Inkstuds on CITR 101.9 FM. I've been talking with uh, Patrick Rosencrantz about his book, The Artist Himself, a uh, retrospective on uh, Rand Holmes. There, Patrick will be in town on Saturday, August the 6th at Lucky's Comics at 24th and Main uh, for an art show of Rand's work um, curated by Patrick and uh, Ram's widow, Martha which I'm very excited about. Yes, I'm going to present a slideshow also that night, and one of the things I've been wanting to do for a while is to compare Harold Head with the Furry Freak Brothers. You know, a lot of people say, oh, Harold Head is just a Canadian version of the Freak Brothers. And there's some truth to that, in that they're both counterculture uh, characters, and they live on their wits, and they're on the fringes of society, and so on. But there are a lot of really big differences between the two, and I plan to address that in my in my talk that night. I feel like there's something a lot more personal within Harold Head that you don't see in Furry Freak Brothers. Well, Gilbert Shelton is divided into three: Free Will and Frank, Phineas and Fat Freddy, and Harold Head is a single character. Mm -hmm. Harold Head actually has some useful skills too. He can fly an airplane, he can use hand tools, he knows how his way around firearms. You know, that's a whole other area of Rand, too, that I included in the book, is his dreams of being a 19th century woodsman, <laughs> uh, a trapper and hunter in the Canadian wilds. And he really had a very rich internal life, and he drew on that a lot. I think he lived in his mind more than he lived in the real world. 
But the fact that he um, made his own weapons and clothes and had a cabin in the woods where he'd go off to hunt deer and birds and all that sort of thing was another aspect of his personality. And then the fact that he wanted to be a homesteader and he lived on this remote island and he cut down the trees to make the timber to build his house and so on and so forth. It was just a uh, part of him. And, you know, I can't tell the story of Rand Holmes by only talking about his work, his artistic work, because his, his dreams about being a, a pioneer and his love of black powder weapons is just as much a part of his story as his cartoons. The, the, I was thinking about the, the hunting that he did and how it kind of reminds me of some other figures of that time. Um, but they were more into just shooting things than necessarily the hunting aspect. Just thinking of like writers like Burroughs or Hunter S. Thompson. But then I got to think about it more and just seeing, remembering at the beginning of the book where they go hunting Rand and his brother, uh, was it Rhett? Right. They go hunting uh, with their father and they had a really disconnected relationship with their father. And it seems like that hunting was his way of connecting with his dad. Would that be accurate? I think you're probably right. There was some of that. But then look what happened during that hunting trip. Yeah. They shot their father. <laughs> well, they didn't. Red is the one who shot him. Right in the chest, too. Man. <laughs> Pulled a Dick so Cheney. The funny part about that particular story is that uh, when Rand's father was in the hospital recovering and Rand was talking about it to one of his buddies, he said his father was displaying a, 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 a physical effect called the death rattle. He was making these noises in his chest, what the doctors referred to as a death rattle. And that turned out to be the title of the comic he drew a bunch of stories for in the 1980s <laughs> for Kitchen Sink Press. <laughs> Oh, a sad dark His whole world. life is full of these kind of coincidences and contradictions and, you know, you just wonder about that. Yeah, the connections. He had a hard childhood, but you never hear him complain about it. No. You know, his mom had that debilitating disease and his dad was distant and, you know, he had an unhappy early marriage and Edmonton was a nowheresville and, and yet he never complains about it. His work is just... Uh, straight-ahead adventures and excitement and humor. The one he came closest to autobiographical story, though, was the artist himself, mm -hmm. which is one of my favorite pieces that he did, because he really reveals himself in there. If you look at some of the speech balloons, too, even the tiny ones with a small print, there are all sorts of hints of things that happen in there. There's one he talks about his permanent record in high school and his dad covering up some sex scandal back in Edmonton. And you wonder, what the heck was that about? There were a couple of stories about Rand I wasn't able to chase down that were like that. And he managed to keep a few secrets from me. Do you... It's hard to do when I'm on the trail. <laughs> do, are you still pursuing those, even though the book is done, just so you have those questions answered? I'm content to let sleeping dogs lie at this point. All right. Although I did get a few good stories out of his first wife that I chose not to include. The paintings seem to go more into that um, less adventure and more just kind of bringing those unique qualities of his life up front, I guess. Especially with well, the, the 
allegorical usage. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing, the surrealistic aspects of them, and the fact that he didn't title a lot of them, and he wouldn't talk about them, he wouldn't interpret them. That, to me, is really interesting. Like that one painting he did that shows some kind of observatory, maybe on the moon, with scientists and two naked women who look like muses. What the heck is that all about? Oh, yeah. That's... I mean, I saw his sketches for it, and I saw the reference photos he used for it, but I just don't know what it's about. And it's quite a, like, in every which way, it's an amazing painting. Too. And there are things on the floor, all kinds of things written on the floor, zodiac symbols and whatnot. Everything. Yeah, I wish I could talk to him about those. <laughs> yep. It's it's like every everything within a painting has a purpose or serves a purpose. Well, he wouldn't even talk about them with his wife or son, so nobody can really know what he meant with them. Mm -hmm. And it was so frustrating for him, too, at the end, according to Martha, to be on that island to produce these masterpieces, to have nobody see them, to have no way to get them off the island and into an art show somewhere. He was totally frustrated with that by the end of his life. You know, at first he wanted to get away from it all and go someplace where nobody would bother him, but eventually, as an artist, he felt that loss, the loss of an audience, the loss of feedback. I think that was something real uh, painful for him in his last few years. Well, and it seemed like life was getting more and more isolated as his sons were going to school and his right. family was off the island. Yep. Even his neighbors that. didn't know what he was doing. Yeah. It's, it's definitely uh, one of those tragic stories of underground cartoonists. Well, Rand is a very obscure character. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are, you know, hearing about him for the first time through this book. And the book isn't selling all that well because you know, nobody knows him. Nobody's trying to seek him out. Another book on Stan Lee or, you know, Spider-Man or, or some of these other characters, you know, they sell hundreds of thousands but uh, Rand Holmes is still working his way toward the sale of 2,000 copies. So I'm content with the fact that he was obscure. I chose him as my subject. I spent several years on research and writing. And the monetary rewards are small, but <laughs> I got a lot out of just doing the project. My satisfaction came from making the book. And it's amazing to have all this information together on him, too. As, as well as like the be able to include all these great comics. Um, one of my favorites is uh, the um, Fog City comic story with the uh, the rats. And Nip and Tuck in Animal Antics. Yeah, or Im Anal Antics. <laughs> well, it says Anal Antics, but if you look closely, there are a couple of small letters with a little carrot oh, there. Oh yeah. So animal instead of anal. But yeah. you can look at it either way, because they end up pulling a opium suppository out of some lady's butt. Did you guys, um, when putting together, it sounds like he kept a lot of his original art. So did you photograph for the original art, or was it from the comic pages? Yes, it was mostly from his original art, except for the color work, of course, which came from the printed pages. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a review of my book on uh, Amazon.com, where the reviewer complains that 
the artwork isn't as sharp as it could be, and she knew I had access to the original art, so why did I copy it from the books rather than the original art? But she's wrong. <laughs> it did come from the original art, and uh, Martha's second husband, uh, Gordon Lafleur, is a professional photographer, so he did all the copy work of the uh, artwork. Okay. Yes, Rand kept most of his artwork. He sold a few pieces during his lifetime to a collector in Washington named Bruce Siemens. And uh, Siemens would not cooperate with me in the production of this book. But I do have copies of all his correspondence with Rand, and I know which pieces he owns. But most of it's still there in Martha's home, in a closet. I spoke to her the other day, and she said, you know, this is just what Rand hated, to have his work all stuck someplace in a closet, and nobody gets to see it. She really wants to have some museum exhibit somewhere. Has she been to have a traveling exhibit. Has she been in talk with the um, the Canadian with the yeah the National Art Gallery in Ottawa at all? Or I know that she and her friend Kathy Schultz have been making inquiries, mm -hmm. but they haven't been successful yet. We almost got an exhibit up at uh, that art school there in Vancouver. Um, Emily Carr. Yes, Emily Carr, but that didn't work out either. And they were in touch with uh, the Vancouver Art Museum as well. But I think that they need somebody else who is more familiar with the art world to be their agent. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's an odd world to navigate. And the Vancouver yes. Gallery isn't particularly um, embracing of Vancouver art. <laughs> well, they did have that show on comics a few years ago. Yep. What was that one called? It was called Crazy. but um, And there was some fantastic work in there, which... Part of it we'll touch on in a couple of minutes when we talk about autobio. But as far as like Canadian cartoonists or Vancouver cartoonists, there was the only Vancouver artists in the whole show because um, it was like comics, video games, animation, anime, manga, graphic novels. Was uh, Marv Newland was the only Vancouver person in the whole thing, hmm. and uh, he was selected not by the gallery but the fellow doing the animation component because. Marv is Marv and so important in animation, so. Right. Yeah. Um, maybe let's jump into the, the one of your recent studies you've been doing is uh, you did that article for the Comics Journal when they had their relaunch um, on autobio cartoonists. What was your particular choice in doing that as a subject? Well, you remember Comic Art Magazine from a few years ago? Yep. It was edited uh, by Todd Hignite. Mm -hmm. It was a great magazine. It was Loved just it. beautifully done. And I did three articles for them. Um, oh, five to 7,000 words each. Let's see, uh, one on uh, S. Clay Wilson's juvenilia art, and um, one on Dutch cartoonists, and one on Rand Holmes and the Canadian Underground Press. So uh, I did one last story for them just before they went out of business about the ABCs of Autobio Comics. And uh, it just missed being an issue number nine, and number ten didn't come out. So I sat on it for a few years. And then when the Comics Journal went to that new relaunch online, I proposed it to Dan Nadell, and he says, yeah, I'll do it. And I said, well, let me expand it first, then, since it's been a couple of years. <laughs> and I, I <laughs> managed to expand it to 12,000 words. <laughs> <laughs> and it appeared in their, their first issue, if you can call it an issue. I don't know what you call it when it shows up online instead of on paper. Mm -hmm. So uh, what I did was I started with uh, 
Justin Green and Binky Brown, which is where autobiographical comics began, and I brought it up to the present day, and uh, I ended with uh, people doing online biocomics like uh, Gabriel Bell and uh, Jeffrey Brown. Mm -hmm. So my intent was to examine the whole field and look at the variations on the theme. Some people who did autobiocomics that were strictly real, some who had elements of fantasy or fiction, some who did it as travelogues, uh, people like Joe Sacco who did it as uh, war journals. I really wanted to examine the topic because since those days when uh, Justin Green dared to climb out of the artist chair and put himself in the comic strips, it's uh, developed into quite an area in, in the comic genre. Uh, there's a lot of people today doing it who I'm not aware of because their work is just beginning. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of young people who are putting their stories in their websites so there are a lot more people out there than I personally know of, but uh, I covered probably at least 40 or 50 people in my article. One of the ones I really enjoyed a lot was uh, the uh, guy who did those comics for uh, Fantagraphics in the early 90s. Oh, Denny Icord. Uh, right. Uh, real Smut and Real Stuff. No, not Real Smut. Was it yep. Real Smut? Yeah, he did yeah, real, re smut. real Stuff, Real Smut, and there was one more, Real Schmucks? Yeah, Which was the one like he did after his kind of blow up with fanographics. Right. A real schmutz. I can't remember. But yeah. I love his stories because they're just such wild adventures of crazy <laughs> dangerous behavior that he somehow managed to live through. They reminded me a lot of Mary Fleener too, who does similar stories about, you know, rock and roll parties and drinking and drugs and unsafe sex and all that stuff. The ones today, you know, the, the people who are doing it today, they seem a little tame in comparison, but I do enjoy quite a few of them. One of my favorites, uh, which you touch on just in his connection with uh, Jeffrey Brown, is Anders Nilsson, um, whose book, Don't Go Where I Can't Follow, is one of the strongest autobiocomics to come out, I'd say, in the last ten years. And it's, uh, so what do you think about the young cartoonists who are working in that genre? I, I like a lot of it. Um, I also... The funny thing about Autobio is I'm really into seeing kind of the exploration of Autobio, not necessarily being strict Autobio, but understanding... Um, you know, say you look at something like Jack Kirby's Fantastic Four and how elements of that are very much of Jack Kirby's identity and of his life... I guess it's that allegorical, going back to that, that metaphorical usage of characters um, and how they represent who that person is. That's that's something I'm really into kind of seeing more of and kind of understanding more of so we get a deeper connection with this work. Well, some of the older guys from the 20s and 30s and 40s would do that. They'd bring elements of their own life into their stories, but they weren't about the cartoonist. They were about a fictional character who borrowed from the cartoonist life. Yeah. Like Elsie Seeger and Popeye. But uh, who are some of the people you like now and who are doing that kind of work, and what is it you like about them? I'm a little clueless <laughs> on some of the new guys. Well, like I said, girls. Anders is definitely one. Um, his Don't Go Where I Can't Follow is this amazing usage of uh, really rough journal 
diary, travel comics, mixed with letters, uh, mixed with uh, sketchbook drawings of his fiance. Um, it's all about when his uh, fiance died from cancer at a fairly young age. I think they were in their mid twenties, um, and it's incredibly heartbreaking. Uh, heartbreaking in a way that it really it's really touching the way his work comes across like it's not forced it's not fake there's um, so really it switches from sad story to true art yeah it's it's definitely like the the art of the sad no i don't like i'm not going to say that um it's it's beautiful and wonderful and i think uh he's one of my favorite folks right well, now well you and i were both at stumptown Mm-hmm. And there was a panel on autobiocomics, and I wasn't aware of any of those cartoonists' work except for Jeffrey Brown. There were three other people on the panel whose work I'd never seen, and yet they were recognized enough in the comics community to be asked to give a panel. Are, do you remember the other folks that were on it? I'd have to look that up. <laughs> there was uh, three other women, but I can't remember their names right now. Probably Erica Bone. It's funny, though, like... Um, one thing that's One really of them was a Portland woman. Yeah, Portland the, woman who was a lesbian who married a guy. Yeah, that would be Erica Moan. Right. Um, a and lot there was of a Asian girl. Not There's t- that Asian Canadian girl too. What is her name? Tanaki Tamaku. Oh, Jillian Tamaki, um, or Mariko Tamaki. They're cousins, and they uh-huh. the book Skim. Um, there was that book about being a schoolgirl. Skim. Yeah. But that's not a uh, that's not an autobio. Hmm. It's uh, fiction. See what I mean? I'm clueless. These young <laughs> kids, I don't know what they're doing. It's an amazing book, though. They're full of surprises. It's, uh, that, that is an amazing book, and they're doing another book in the next while. Uh, that'll probably be out in a couple of years. Um. <laughs> they'll probably be out in a couple of years. Oh, man, you've got to have endurance and faith when you talk <laughs> like that. Uh, there's a Canadian fellow, uh, French-Canadian, uh, Philippe Girard, and also Pascal Girard. Uh, no relation. Um, who oh, he does those Paul stories. Uh, no, that that's right? that's Michelle Rabaziati, who also... Oh, okay. who, who Who's another fantastic one. I love those Paul stories. They're very genuine. Uh, they're sweet stories. Um, he, he has a really emotive, effective way of drawing and a way of telling a story. Um, Philippe's latest book is called uh, Killing Velasquez, um, which is this heart-wrenching story, again with the the heart being destroyed, um, of him as a child being involved in this odd youth group with this um, priest who was molesting some of the folks and touches on that and how uh, Philippe uh, processed that and how he kind of got through it and kind of reflections on that time and it's really subtle really beautiful really minimal black and white style like you can see some similarities between him and say someone like Guy Delisle um, more than you know kind of coming out from the same area right but Guy Delisle does those travelogues which are yeah. very interesting too a real insight into the culture where he visits because he puts himself in the middle of the story yeah, you know, sometimes I admire the bravery that uh, they display in telling their secrets and their deep, dark, uh, 
guilty kind of adventures and experiences, but at the same time, I see it as a masturbatory kind of genre <laughs> where they you know, just talk about themselves over and over and over again. So some people say that it's easy to do autobiographical stuff because you just tell stories about yourself. But, as Mary Fleener points out, there's nothing easy about doing comics. No. Well, it's like uh, you look at um, Carol Tyler's uh, latest books, which, you know, probably have to be... I don't know how much work has gone into those, but they're just such amazing crafts, um, looking at her life, her father's life, and everyone else around them's lives, and how it all intertwines, and how it's all messed up, and why is it all messed up. Um, I really loved both those books so far. Plus and the historical research she had to do to get her facts straight. Yeah, yeah, and it's a, it's uh, you really have to give give a lot of credit to her for that historical research, where a lot of folks, when they're doing autobio stuff, may just worry mainly on telling like a person, like the personal part. And yeah, this stuff happened, but I don't know exactly how it happened. And her is like she needs to be specific. She needs to know what battle it was, what the weather was like, how many people died, what were they probably eating at that point in time, what kind of access to food did they have, what the jeeps look like. Yeah. Yeah, and she captures her dad so well. He's such an interesting character. Chuck, Chuck Tyler. You'd want you want to meet him after reading that book. Well, you go from that extreme where someone is talking about the intimate details of their own life, and you go to someone like Rand Holmes who hid his life from the public, who lived in very private circumstances, and this book gave me the chance to put those two things together, mm -hmm. to tell people about Rand the person, because I really feel you know more about the person who did the work, you understand their work better. Well, the other... Th even just little things, I'm sorry... Even just little yeah. things, like in many of his stories, you will see a gas meter hanging on the wall. Now, you'll also see uh, a Ford uh, engine sitting under a bed holding it up. Those two things appear in his comic strips from the earliest days to the latest days. Now, what did those things mean to him? They were real things in his life, but why did he keep repeating them? And the more you understand about his life, the more you understand why those elements were important to him. He also I don't know how he would feel. He might be embarrassed by the book. Possibly. He might think, hey, this is not in nobody's business. I don't mean to keep interrupting you, Robert. No, no, Go no. Ahead. Go ahead. Well, I'd just say the the fact of how much he put himself out there with his sexuality right. um, is really astonishing, in a way, for the time period. Especially the stuff in the Georgia Strait. You're telling a story about his friend, was it Danny Matheson? You know, the story of two men giving each other fellatio. Uh, that, that not a lot of folks would do that kind of comic strip. So, like, blunt, harsh sexuality. Well, it was funny, because while the counterculture was full of all kinds of taboos being broken and freedom of expression, uh, they still had reservations about homosexuality. In fact, when, when that comic strip appeared in the Georgia Strait, the printer insisted on blacking out most of it. Mm -hmm. And then it appeared in the Berkeley Barb, and they printed it without any uh, censorship. And a lot of the people in the underground kind of reacted in an odd way to it. 
because the characters that you saw in the other people's comics were, um, you know, caricatures of gays, limp wrists, uh, flamboyant, uh, lisping, kind of prancing characters, and Rand was one of the few to uh, show it like it was, and that made a lot of people nervous, even some of his colleagues. Mm-hmm. No, it's amazing. I uh, I really that that's one of the things I really kind of saw is like one of his stronger works. Um, and then to read in his journal how he had encounters in gay bars and anonymous sex and bathrooms and yet at his in his deathbed he decided that he was basically homosexual or heterosexual. Yeah. That the homosexual thing was uh, basically an experiment. I love the part in the book uh, where he references going to the number five orange and making eyes with another gentleman. That wouldn't happen. Well, you know now. that bar, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Googly eyes. Yeah. Flirty eyes. It's uh, a pretty notorious strip club. Huh. And uh, Courtney Love even stripped there once, apparently. Oh, well, that's exciting. Yeah. Maybe when she was young, I wouldn't want to see it now. No, it was definitely many, many years ago. Uh, and his other story about some older guy trying to pick him up, and so he went into his nodding off uh, junkie <laughs> routine, so the guy'd leave him alone. And his battle with food was another interesting part of his life. You know, the fact that he he alternately starved and and gorged himself. <laughs> and counted his calories. Well, he did that back in Edmonton when he was a young man. He joined Weight Watchers and counted calories. That seems like such a strange thing for a man to do, but that's what he did. That's And you look at the photos of him, and you don't see why. Kind of pudgy. No, I didn't think he was. I thought he was fairly, most of the time, not. Well, look at his wedding picture again from his first wife. You'll see oh, okay. he's got a little weight on him. Yeah, he was definitely unhappy back in Edmonton. The town was too small for him. And, you know, people will criticize the fact that he left his wife and kids and went to the West Coast. But, uh, you know, that's that's how it was those days. You followed your dream. You, you went where the action was. You rejected all the middle-class values that say, oh, you have to stay with your wife until death do you part. And it was crude, and it was rude, and it was cruel, but he did it. It was also not unusual. There's other stories of other folks doing that. That's not unusual to hear from about male cartoonists. Yeah, the whole era. fabric of society was breaking up. Yeah. Um, we have just a little bit of time, and I just want to touch on the other article you told me you're working on about Roger Brandt, um, who is kind of a not-talked-about character, but really had a big role in the New York. He was in New York, right? Yeah, he started out as an assistant to a couple of uh, overground cartoonists, Gil Kane, Wally Wood, and uh, he learned anatomy, drawing anatomy that way. But when the East Village Other appeared and they started putting out the tabloid Gothic Blimpworks, he uh, contributed some work to that, and that was his introduction to the underground. And then uh, he got a job for the Chicago uh, paper, uh, drawing a strip called uh, Estelle, I think it was, or Camille, about this sexually active woman. And then he and his wife, uh, Michelle Brand, moved to uh, San Francisco and got right involved with the underground. Mm -hmm. He edited the Tales of Sex and Death and some of the other books. 
But Roger is kind of obscure these days. It always surprises me when these underground cartoonists become unknowns. And I say, well, how did people forget about them? But uh, Roger Brand is one of those. He falls in that category. Now, I started uh, writing an article about him, and I was corresponding with Kim Deitch about it. And Kim expressed an interest in doing that himself. So I turned over all my uh, interview notes and photographs to Kim because he knew Roger better than I did. So I'm going to let him do that story. Oh, okay. And he tells me that he's working on it now, so it should appear in the Comics Journal sometime in the future. Oh, that'll be fantastic. Uh, I've heard that, like, Roger was the one that kind of introduced everyone to Wally, or to Woody, Wally Wood. Um, and for, like, any stories, he'd be the guy that would have the Wally Wood stories. Apparently he never drunk in front of any of the other cartoonists. Um, Robin, I'm having a hard time hearing you. I don't know if it's you're away from the phone or my phone's dying. Um, I was saying about how Roger Brandt was the guy that introduced a lot of them to Wally Wood. Yes, yes he did. He uh, brought Wally Wood down to the uh, uh, East Village Other and introduced him around to Spiegelman and uh, Deitch and Spain Rodriguez and some of the others. And Wally really liked hanging out with those guys. He liked being part of that scene. Although he never really was uh, in the underground, he did some work in Wits End Magazine and uh, the Big Apple Comics and, you know, a few other fringe things in the underground. But, you know, he was so involved with making a living and doing all that work that he did for everybody you can possibly think of. Mm-hmm. And he was drinking a lot and his health was failing and so on and so forth. So he was kind of a sad character by that point, but, you know, he was still inspirational. And uh, I think uh, Wally's a fellow we could probably talk for about three hours about. (laughs) Bob Stewart isn't one who really knew him well. Worked with him a long time. Um, I think we're pretty much at the end of our time slot here, Patrick. Let me end by inviting your viewers to come see the show, and I'm looking forward to being in there. And this is really the only chance I've had to talk about Rand in public because there have been no other book signings. No other art shows outside of that one on Laskiti. So this could be a very special event, and I plan to pull out all stops and really give everybody a good show. Nice. Well, thank you so much, Patrick, for uh, helping to put this together and make all this happen for for the Rand family, the Holmes family. All right, well, keep on ink studding.
I'm ready for the river, the shivery river. So get that river ready for me, I say. Get that river ready for me.